0: make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. I am Dr. Vera Tarman and I am your co-host today, along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today we are speaking once again to Dr. Kim Dennis. Dr. Kim obtained her MD at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine and is a board-certified psychiatrist. She specializes in treating substance use disorders, eating disorders, and co-occurring psychiatric disorders. Dr. Kim is a member of the American Medical Association, the Academy of Eating Disorders, the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, and the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Dennis contributes regularly to news networks, such as the ABC News and CNN, other national press like Huffington Post, Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe and WebMD. She's also been featured on the Learning Channel and the ABC's Twenty Twenty. And if that's not enough, she also has her own regular blog called Live Free. Notably for us, she has her own personal experience as a woman in recovery from an eating disorder and alcoholism. You may recall that we spoke with Dr. Dennis in the first year of our Food Junkies podcast about her role and opinions about how to get food addiction approved in the ICD DSM-5, as well as about the overlap between food addiction and eating disorders. Today, we wish to dive deep into the medical treatments for food addiction and obesity, exploring various options and their efficacy. So after all of that, welcome, Dr. Kim.
2: Thank you. I'm really, really happy to be back here. Yeah,
1: thank you. So we've heard a little bit about your personal story in uh, the first two interviews that we did with you. Now, could you tell us sort of an update about how you feel about your role in psychiatry in 2023 and your hopes in terms of the food addiction field specifically? Sure.
2: So, you know, here in 2023, I think since last we spoke, you know, in my role as chief medical officer and co founder at SunCloud Health, we've been able to open a specialty residential unit for people with co occurring eating disorders and addiction, including people who have food addiction. And that's been extremely exciting and a long time dream of mine. So, I spend a good deal of my time working with the staff there and and seeing patients there as well. We have an interventional psychiatry suite that's across the parking lot from our residential where we also can do TMS for people with, you know, insurance approves it for major depressive disorder and OCD. It's been studied for other stuff as well but most of our patients are using insurance and can't afford to just pay out of pocket for interventional services. We also use esketamine there, or spravado for treatment-resistant depression. We use it for people who have addiction, I would say much more cautiously, but it's it's different than the ketamine clinics that are popping up that are IV ketamine clinics. The mechanism of delivery is different, the time of onset, is different. So those are, I would say, two of the newer things that I've been involved in. I think in psychiatry right now, it's a really exciting time with uh, so much data being generated around the psychedelic re-emergence. And a lot of it is very, very preliminary. Um, much of it is privately funded, which is also something that makes me suspicious always, you know, and, and some of it is publicly funded through NIMH, um, like the, the work happening at Hopkins, for example. So I think it's an exciting time in, in psychiatry, um, particularly when we look at possibly being able to have some more tools to help people with hard-to-treat illness, like post-traumatic stress disorder eating disorders that are severe and enduring and addiction.
1: Okay. So I'm going to stop you there because I want to back up. So you've um, kind of started with uh, some of the exciting new interventions, and I really want to talk more about those. But let let me just back up, because when you uh, did uh, the podcast a couple of years ago, I think we spoke mainly about your food as medicine approach, because I know that you believe that as do I, but this podcast is to say, well, what? For the people who don't want to do that or that's not enough. What about medication? So do you mind talking a little bit about some of the more traditional medication uh, that we use for food addiction? And then we'll get into the uh, exciting stuff like the psychedelics and the TMS and the whatevers. Um, So if we can just start with some of the more traditional stuff, like, for example, antidepressants, what are your thoughts about them? Do they help? Do they hinder? Then I'm going to ask you about antipsychotics and then naltrexone contract. So anyway, go ahead, start with yeah.
2: Yep. So antidepressants. So I think it's important to say, you know, when, when I treat patients, I make a distinction between what is an eating disorder, uh, what is food addiction. Some people have both. Some people just have food addiction. Some people just have an eating disorder without food addiction. Because food addiction has yet to be legitimized, we don't have any FDA approved medication trials in that patient population, right? So I think a lot of what I see clinically as food addiction, some of the medication trials that are applicable to those folks are, for example, high-dose naltrexone, which has been studied in people with bulimia nervosa and shown to decrease numbers of binge purge episodes per week. The risk obviously is with uh, liver toxicity. When you go up in dose, that risk increases and you have to check liver function tests. It's not the kind of intervention where I would say a patient who has severe or extreme illness severity. So binging and purging 10 times a day, every day. It's not the kind of thing where you start a person on Altrexone and they're like, oh my God, I don't binge and purge anymore. So it's the sort of thing that I conceptualize as, you know, like if I, I think about recovery as a, like a bicycle wheel with the center being recovery for that person. And, you know, if we chip away at it from many different angles, you know, if, if the medication takes away of the disease, but I'm also working on these other 10 angles, that might be very meaningful. So it's never something that I don't know of a medication that has helped people with food addiction or eating disorders that's curative for them. In and of itself, so
1: and, and then Altrexone, the, the mechanism that works there is because it's a it's a endorphin blunter, so that it takes the pleasure away from eating. I guess that's the principle behind it, eh?
2: Yeah, similarly, how we would use it for uh, alcohol use disorder, or alcohol addiction. The difference, I would say, is you know, for people who have. Food addiction, it would be more of an endorphin blocker for people who have binge eating disorder or bulimia nervosa without food addiction. It would be more of that endorphin blocker as well. Yeah. Um, you know, when somebody's injecting heroin or ingesting alcohol, the opioid response is related to the dopamine response, right? because of this substance that's ingested. For some people with eating disorders of the out of control eating variety uh, or dimension, it may not be related to the substance itself that the person is ingesting. But the behavioral addiction that um, is represented by engaging in the behavior and then the top down, you know I think oftentimes in addiction medicine. and when both doctors and lay people think about addiction, they just think about that bottom-up euphoria or hedonic eating, you know, hedonic drug use. And for most people with moderate to severe addiction, that's no longer hedonic. Right, it's that top-down frontal striatal habit loop that happens whether you want it to happen or not. Is that's where people are at once they come to a place like mine and are needing a higher level of care. You know, they don't even like it anymore. They just can't stop.
1: So naltrexone, um, you mentioned, and then Contrave, which has naltrexone on it. Do you use that drug very much? I mean, that's a combo of uh, Wellbutrin and naltrexone. Do you use that just as much, or what's your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, so I've never used, used Contrave. I don't treat overweight or obesity. I okay. think obesity is not, I think it's a fake disease. And um, the focus of my work with patients is always, always on treating the addiction. When, you know, you, you mentioned antidepressants. There is, again, in Bolivia nervosa, some evidence to show that higher dose SSRI medications can help with binge purge frequency. There's really no other clear evidence for use of SSRI specifically for eating disorders other than if the person has a comorbid anxiety disorder or depression. So I use it a lot because most of my patients have co-occurring depression. Well, Wellbutrin I use with caution for people with eating disorders regardless of their body size because one of the things that I think is important for all people in recovery, but especially those with eating disorders, is to be to reconnect with or connect for the first time with your body. And, you know, if somebody is on bupropion, that's going to diminish appetite. Yes. And I think it's important for people to be connected to their natural appetite as much as possible. So when I make medication decisions, at top of mind is always, is this going to increase this person's capacity to connect on a deep level with themselves, with their spirit, with other people? or is it going to interfere with any part of that and then if it is it's not necessarily i won't use it in a rigid you know all or nothing way it's if i use it it's going to be because of x y or z good reason okay. you know so for example if somebody has binge eating disorder or bulimia or even anorexia and they're on you know for anorexia they've their weight restored or on a weight restoration trajectory and in a high level of care and it's the only antidepressant that's ever helped their depression which sometimes is true, and I get collateral on, but sometimes is really just their disease saying, like, you know, like, hey, ER doctor, the only thing that ever helps with my pain is Dilaudid. So there's some amount of discernment that goes around it, but you know, when we do use it in patients with eating disorders, always with collateral, always with a high level of monitoring, because I know that the disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and sometimes a person who has the disease in their brain is not really going to be able to say, no, it's not affecting my appetite.
1: You mentioned, well, Butrin has a slightly stimulating effect. So that's why it has the appetite suppressant. So let's go actually to the, uh, to me, it's the big struggle, which is just stimulants themselves. Person comes in, Vyvanse is prescribed because they have binge eating disorder, which I can't help but think, yeah, really, that's just for the appetite suppressant, right? So what do you do in that context?
2: Because of big pharma. Yeah. You know, Shire, spends a, Shire, Shire spent a lot of money, you know, dumped money into the Binge Eating Disorder Association, which was really needing money at the time. You know, it's it's still a little, like I remember when it came out with its approval for binge eating disorder, I was shocked that everybody in the eating disorder world was so on board with it and didn't really question it very much. Yes, it helps with impulsivity and executive function, uh, but so much of addiction is around dopamine deficiency, right? And stimulants can help with that. But when we're talking again about helping people with eating disorders, regardless of body size, you know, so whether somebody is in a very, very large body or an underweight body, a very small body, I would never start with a stimulant. You know, if somebody has true ADHD and it's, you know, I think about how much is this impairing their life and they also have a severe and enduring eating disorder that has literally wrecked their life. I'm going to use stimulants. You know, the the weight of the risk of that destabilizing their eating disorder is much much bigger than the benefit. Even though they work really well for ADHD, we have other tools for ADHD. You know, we have non-stimulant options that maybe aren't at maybe aren't going to get them to 100% remission of their ADHD, but 90% or 85%. And their eating disorder is not going to be, you know, potentially completely derailed by it. I'm going to go with the non-stimulant for that person. Twenty times out of twenty. Now you're
1: talking from the context of eating disorder. If you were looking at a food addict, wouldn't wouldn't you feel that way even more so?
2: Totally. Yeah. Yep. Even more so. You know, because they have, you know, they have addiction risk, And, and this too. Like there are definitely patients who have addiction who have engaged in a course of recovery. Part of That, in my opinion, is always going to be connecting with recovery community, um, spirituality, ongoing engagement and, you know, sober recovery activities. There are some folks who can, in recovery, be on stimulants, you know, at relatively low doses and use those in ways that don't destabilize their addiction. I think oftentimes, you know, what I hear from other medical providers is, well, their drug of choice isn't stimulant, you know, but they can't seem to get sober from their alcohol. And I say to them often, well, first of all, it's drug of no choice, isn't it? And then second of all, do you think it might be possible that the stimulant that the patient is using is activating the reward circuitry to such an extent that their disease is continuing to play out with whatever substance, you know, they have historically used, you know. So if they haven't been able to get sober in the last 15 years on the stimulant, maybe it's time to try a non-stimulant because, They now have three DUIs. You know, they now have lost their job that they needed the ADHD medication for. So those, you know, those are the sorts of things that I think about when I'm treating a patient. And unfortunately, medicine is very fragmented. The eating disorder world is very fragmented. The addiction world is very fragmented. And, you know, if I'm the doctor that's, you know, this outpatient psychiatrist that's not an addiction specialist... And the patient's coming and wanting meds for ADHD and they're all over the place. I'm going to give them the ADHD med. And I will turn a blind eye to, you know, all five other things that they have, including some medical illnesses. And people just don't get well that way.
1: I love your phrase, drug of no choice. We we have to highlight that one. That's great. Okay, so just to go back to what you were saying earlier, so naltrexone, I don't know if that would be your first uh, spoke of the wheel, but it's one of the spokes. So what other medications, before we get to the uh, super exciting stuff, what are some of the other ones that you would draw upon, like the antidepressants or even the antipsychotics? Would you use those in this context?
2: Yep, yep, yep. So I do... You know, topiramate there's some evidence for in binge eating disorder, but that too has side effects that not everybody can tolerate. Do
1: you, um, know, what the, do you know what the mechanism of action for topiramate is? Like yes, I it's, know. Um,
2: like, it's a, a, it increases about? it increases GABA tone. So it okay. decreases neuronal excitability. And it's thought to give people a little bit of a pause. You know, I'm like, instead of going immediately from impulse to action, um, it slows that process down a little bit enough so that somebody may be able to tap into Hey, I, I could call my sponsor right now, or hey, I'm going to use a mindfulness technique or a DBT technique. So it gives people a little bit of, you know, what I like to refer to as that gray space between the urge and the action, but that too has some appetite um, suppression. Uh, so I don't use it very much at all. And most of the time when people come in on it, we, we convert them to other stuff, atypical antipsychotics are can be quite useful particularly for people with high amounts of thought rigidity a lot of people who have a lot of in the way of mixture between anorexia symptoms yes uh, again regardless of body weight some people with larger bodies have anorexia and atypical antipsychotics like abilify Zyprexa is really good for, you know, very underweight people who are very very entrenched in rigid eating disorder thoughts. So, I would say we use those in that context and we also use them to boost the effect of antidepressants if somebody's not fully responding to an antidepressant.
1: So, what about the uh, weight gaining effect especially of Zyprexa and some of the antidepressants? What do you do there? Like that's really a rock and a hard place, isn't it?
2: Not if We are practicing weight-neutral medicine, you know? So it's oftentimes a a deal killer for patients with eating disorders and even patients without eating disorders because there's so much weight stigma in our society. Nobody wants to take something if, you know, I'll smoke cigarettes, you know, and take my chances (laughs) with lung cancer because I'm not going to eat as much. But if you're telling me I could gain five pounds on Abilify, but it'll take care of my you know, depression and anxiety, I don't think I'm going to try that, can't, can't afford that risk, you know. So a lot of times it's it's a sell, but oftentimes people are in, you know, pain is actually our friend when it comes to taking different actions and taking medications that maybe a trusted person is recommending that all of the medications have side effects And I think, you know, with, with all of them being able to trust the provider who is prescribing it to you is a key, a key piece of it. We know that there are some things that some people never get metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance or lipid abnormalities on these medications, and some people do, and we don't really have a great way of knowing ahead of time. I think for some of the meds that really drive appetite, like Zyprexa, if somebody does have a history of true, objective, out-of-control eating, and they're very new to recovery, That's something we take into consideration around whether or not we should prescribe the medication. Some people with bipolar disorder and binge eating disorder and food addiction who, for example, have been suicidal or floridly manic, and the only thing that's really helped them is Seroquel. You know, we we try to adjust the dose to the lowest dose possible to control the symptoms, And then we work on all the program stuff to help with, you know, we work on all the weight stigma stuff on the eating disorder side. We work on all the program stuff on the food addiction side, you know, and many people do just fine on it. It's probably not fair to ask you what
1: your favorite cocktail is of meds, because it's such a varied issue, right? Eating disorder, yeah. food addiction. But uh, but as much as you're willing to respond to that, and then also, do you ever make the decision, I, I'm going to try to do this without medication, like, like using that food as med- medicine? Is that like your f- first approach and then the second?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my favorite cocktail depends on the patient. You know, I I cannot say enough how important it is to individualize treatment to every single individual patient. And I think that is not happening very much in medicine anymore and doesn't happen oftentimes in treatment centers because here's our... Here's our allowable meds, and here's our treatment modality. And if you can't fit in it, you know, good luck. Or there's something wrong with you, you've failed treatment. Versus, you know, can we do genetic testing, psycho, you know, psychotropic medication, genetic testing? Can we get a detailed medication history from you or your psychiatrist? And then can we make a plan that's gonna suit your needs based on your past, based on what we think the underlying brain diseases, you know, and it's going to be different if it's binge eating disorder with alcohol use disorder with food addiction with PTSD than if it's anorexia restricting type or atypical anorexia and, you know, major depressive disorder. So one thing that's always on my cocktail is You know, nourishment, adequate nourishment and adequate hydration. Hydration, too, oftentimes people aren't drinking water at all, or their only liquid intake is caffeine all day long. So, what's going into your body? You know, is it enough? Are there nutritional deficiencies? Are there vitamin and mineral deficiencies? And then, 12 step cocktail, I'm biased you know so i i do a lot of prescri- like the biggest cocktail i prescribe would be a 12 step cocktail of you know, I would say like AA, a cocktail of AA and, you know, EDA or OA and whatever, al maybe a little ACA for you. And then being able to coach people around, okay, I have three different things. I have a trauma history. So fragmentation and like identity diffusion is kind of like where I live, right? So how do you go about being involved in two or three 12-step fellowships? And do it in such a way that you feel like you're one person and you're actually doing the work of the steps in these different programs without making it duplicative, if that makes sense. This comes up often in our clinical work, you know, like this person needs an A sponsor and... Uh, needs to be going to OA too and she has an OA sponsor and is working through the steps with her OA sponsor but she's not doing anything with her ACE you know so okay. how do we coach people so that they can wake up every day as complex person with complex needs and you know take care of their recovery needs in ways that are manageable and sustainable. Okay beautiful. So, beautiful. Sorry I didn't answer like a medication cocktail answer but I,
1: I, I answered the, the the best answer possible because it isn't a simple answer, right? Anyway, I, we want to put a lot of time to the more exciting adventure. So Chrissy, if you want to take it on there.
0: Hey, Food Junkies listeners. We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening.
3: Hey there Food Junkies listeners, Molly here with a new workshop coming in September on dealing with defense mechanisms. As human beings, we are designed to protect ourselves from danger. Our will to survive is primal and innate, but it isn't limited to physical threats to our life. Early in our lives, our defense mechanisms can feel like tools to our very survival. However, as we grow up, these same psychological defenses can start to hurt rather than help us. This workshop will introduce you to the 20 most common defense or psychological mechanisms. Do you take your feelings out on others? Do you justify an unacceptable feeling or behavior with logic? Or do you avoid reality by retreating to a safe place within your mind? By the end of four weeks, you will develop a greater self-awareness and learn effective coping skills so you don't have to resort to these unhelpful defense mechanisms anymore. While parting with your defense mechanisms may mean coming face-to-face with addiction or giving up control over a situation, you'll be taking a step closer to learning to live with your feelings. Join us Wednesdays in September. You'll get pre-recorded videos, worksheets and resources, and four live sessions. Live workshops will be held September 6th, 13th, 20th, and 27th at 2 p.m. Eastern. And as always, our workshops are $50 U.S. Hope to see you there.
0: Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. I thought if you wouldn't mind first, just kind of explaining what is TMS? How does it work? Who might be like the ideal candidate for it? And maybe some of the results that you've seen in working with it thus far.
2: Yep. So TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation, and it's been around for a long time. I think in my residency training back in 2000, it was a relatively new research only kind of thing. And, and it was seen as an alternative to ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, which requires, you know, some amount of anesthesia, which literally delivers electricity to the brain and needs to be done in a hospital type of setting. So TMS you can do in an outpatient office. You know, our TMS suite is. And and what is it? What is it? So it's a big machine. Uh, with a chair that's involved in it, it's really cool. It's it feels like playing a video game when you're doing the motor. So the first session is a, called a motor strip testing. So what you what you do is you have this magnet, and as the provider, you have to find the person's motor strip. So we're targeting a certain area of the brain, and it's all depending on what kind of machine you use. Uh, we use a something called Magstim, so it's all sort of built in, and the first you know. So first, there's an evaluation. So who's appropriate for this? Treatment-resistant depression is for sure appropriate for this, and it's one of the FDA-approved indications. Obsessive-compulsive disorder is another approved indication. It's been used for nicotine use disorder. People use it for addiction. People have used it for PTSD, but these are not yet FDA-approved, to my knowledge, so, what it consists of is sitting under a magnet. You know, the magnet is placed on your head, but just over your head, and it delivers magnetic stimulation to your brain, which causes, you know, influx and efflux of various ions and cations in your, in the nerve cells. And it's thought to generate neuro, you know, neuroplasticity and nerve growth and neurocircuitry flexibility.
1: And there's no um, seizure involved. There's no memory loss. There's nothing like that.
2: Nope. So it's the, so it, it feels like people describe it as it feels like a woodpecker tapping on your skull. Um, I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, you know, you're in the MRI tube and you hear the tap, 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 tap. You don't hear a sound like that, but you feel, you know, you feel the magnet. It's not, it doesn't, it's not painful. We do some people who are very sensitive to it. We have them pre-medicate with Tylenol before the treatment, but the motor uh, mapping session can take 45 minutes to an hour, depending how quickly you find the spot. And if you use the magnet at too high of a strength, or if somebody has a seizure disorder or is taking medications that lower the seizure threshold, they could be at risk of having a seizure. But there are checks and balances sort of built into the machine on magnet strength that really mitigate a lot of that. And the person sits under the machine, the sessions themselves, um, it's usually six weeks, five days a week of sessions that last, you know, 18 to 20 minutes. And most people start responding after about three weeks, four weeks, and the response is is You know, when people do respond, it's a really nice response. And one of the nicest pieces of it is they don't need to be on, you know, medications that they don't want to be on or five or six, you know, many of our patients come in on four, five, six, seven different psychotropic medications. And so we're able to, if we can get them into a place of response and remission with TMS, we're many times able to simplify their medication regimen.
1: And do you think, so 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 that's like things like depression, um, I guess, but what about food addiction? How would it work for that? And have you seen any efficacy there?
2: I know there's some data out there on using it. There's certainly data on using it for substance addiction, like alcohol use disorder, targeting the dorsal prefrontal cortex, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex you know which is thought to help people again inhibit impulses it it can help with that hypofrontality that we see in addiction and in and in, in other impulsive compulsive behavioral disorders like OCD so theoretically for food addiction, it could work in much the same way if the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex is targeted.
0: Which makes sense in terms of you talking about that ability to help with neuroplasticity as well. And so we were also curious, first of all, I just want to highlight that your facility works with you know some of the client's patients that are more complex where they may not be able to even receive treatment at other places. I know Molly and I were there and we got to see the complex cases that you served. And I just want to highlight that, you know, most psychiatrists probably don't have all the skills that you have, which is why if, you know, you're hearing this conversation as a listener, you know, make sure you find the right person who does know what you need, because not everyone is going to have Dr. Dennis's skills. And then I'm wondering with the level of knowledge you have, could you share some of your thoughts on psychedelics as this is becoming, you know, people are saying, oh, this is great for my depression. And this is, you know, this, you know, it's very natural. And I just want to, you know, get a professional's opinion and who has colleagues who may practice this you know, uh, treatment modality, what your thoughts are on that?
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, if you would have asked me a year ago or two years ago, I would have said this is like definitely just private equity money, trying to get a new angle in and, you know, it's right in line with, You know, cannabis is fine. It has no bad effects on the brain. We know that's not true, right? Psychedelics are definitely different in their mechanism of action. And they're also different with regards to addiction potential. Uh, I think because of the way that they work, but you know, I've seen people with addiction to many, many, many different things that are theoretically not addictive, right? I think any of us in the addiction space have. So is there a potential for misuse for sure? Is there a potential for abuse on the hands of the people who are providing the care? Definitely, you know, because part of what happens is the person is in an altered state, and in most, most, most of the trials, I would I would say the data is most robust for post traumatic stress disorder using MDMA, um, using psilocybin, and generally psychedelic therapy is done. So there's there's there are pre sessions or pre therapy sessions where there's a history taken. You start to develop, you know, talking about, well, what are some of the goals and integration hopes for you? And then there's the actual delivery of the psychedelic substance day, which is an eight hour day where you sit with two therapists who are working through stuff with you. That's very different than taking LSD at, you know, a dead concert, right? Setting is a... I think a very very important piece of it. And then after the the administration day there are integration therapy sessions that follow it in the subsequent weeks and I think that's an important piece of it too. You know, but I don't I don't believe that there's ever going to be, you know, for truly complex patients who have chronic suicidal ideation, tons of trauma history, multiply addicted. I don't think there's ever going to be a, you know, come in, do this MDMA treatment for, you know, it'll take a month, you'll get the substance on one of the days for eight hours, and then you'll be cured. I do know people in recovery who've done, you know, who've gone down to Mexico and done ayahuasca, you know, and talk about profound healing experiences around their trauma. And, you know, do I think that's possible? Yes. Do I think it wipes out their recovery? No. You know, it depends. So much of this depends on how it's done, why it's done, and who it's Mm -hmm. done with.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. I also wanted, at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned you were excited about TMS, and then there was another two things that you named, and I can't remember if they were medications or...
2: So, S-ketamine Yeah, or Spravato. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Could what, what you that? speak what about that? that? So sprovato is the uh, nasal form of ketamine, huh. not the S in And it's um, been FDA-approved for treatment-resistant depression. And you use it in an outpatient office type of setting. You can use it, obviously, in residential or other settings as well. But unlike IV ketamine, which obviously you need to run an IV for, the experience for people when they have IV ketamine is intense and quick much quicker onset. For S-ketamine, it's usually, so for the first month, they get it twice a week. And for the treatment, they give themselves the inhaled medication. They need to be monitored by a medical professional for the first 40 minutes because it can jack up blood pressure and heart rate but they sit at the facility for two hours with monitoring. Most people experience some amount of like mild dissociation. Some people might have a little bit of mild nausea. With IV ketamine, those things can be much more intense. And a lot of patients who I've had with trauma histories really don't like, can't tolerate the amount of dissociation that they feel in IV ketamine clinics. I've treated patients who, who, you know, are addicted to ketamine and use it's a very commonly used club drug in the United States anyways. but the the nasal ketamine is a lot slower acting. With IV ketamine if somebody is acutely suicidal, that could remit after the first treatment and people's mood increases. but it can go away just as fast again with those patients that are chronically suicidal have it it's not a trauma treatment you know it's a depression treatment and it'll take away suicidal thoughts if the suicidal thoughts are related to more to depression and not related to i'm addicted and I just can't stop and I want to die or I was sexually abused like for the first 5 years of my life and that stuff's replaying constantly I want to die it doesn't take away trauma you know okay. so there needs to be ongoing therapy there needs to be ongoing you know recovery community engagement
1: the food addict who walks into your room who doesn't have a huge history of trauma
2: um i don't think there's any
1: probably thinking hey is this something i
2: should try right of course it's quick it works she said it worked on the first time i get to have an iv this sounds amazing sign me up <laughs> you know there's no data or indication for it working for food addiction. There's some data, but very, very preliminary for using it with alcohol use disorder, IV ketamine, and it decreasing, you know, the amount that a person drinks when they do drink, and the frequency that they're drinking.
1: Well, what about ayahuasca? So that's been shown to be very useful for opiates uh, addiction. So why not food addiction then?
2: Potentially, I think. I think that's where the state the state of it right now is is a big potentially. You wow. know, and for patients who have tried everything under the sun, who are at risk of dying, you know, that's when a uh, something like a uh, you know a clinical trial makes sense. That's when something like maybe like, you know, do, you know, find somebody who can provide MDMA assisted therapy for you, you know, but short of that, I don't think the data that we have right now is robust enough that I would want to send like my child for it,
1: you know? Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's talk about, uh, Chrissy, do you have any more questions about psychedelics?
0: No, no, that's good. I was just wondering with the esketamine, um, is there like a treatment plan? Like, does it go for a certain amount of weeks that you'll have to do like twice a week? What does that look like?
2: Yeah. So it's twice a week for the first month and then it's weekly for another month. And then it's sort of like depends on the person. So most people get to a place of remission after, you know, two months, three months and don't need it you know regularly after that uh, but can get it again if they start to tank in their mood i have one patient that is on a long longer standing and longer lasting every other week regimen so every other week she comes in and she's been getting it for about 5 or 6 months now
1: okay uh, so, And that would be for somebody uh, who, who, again, our population is food addiction or, or emotional eating. That would be for somebody who uses food basically to self-medicate mood.
2: Yep. Yeah. So for this patient, she has an eating disorder and I think addictive and compulsive restricting. Right. And, you know, a lot of her suicidal thoughts are related to my body's too big. I can't live in this body, which is a cognitive distortion. That doesn't necessarily go away with esketamine, but her depression definitely gets better. And the intensity of those thoughts definitely decrease.
1: We got to talk about Ozempic because that's the big drug, uh, for, uh, in our community of food addiction. There's a lot of people who suffer from obesity and they've gone to their doctors and now they're on Ozempic or they're thinking about it. And, and, uh, you know, recently there's become some information that not only does it help diabetes and, and then therefore weight loss, but it also seems to have some impact on addictive behavior. And that I find that very fascinating. So I wondered if you wanted to speak to that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, the only time that I would recommend Osempic for any of my patients with food addiction, alcoholism, skin picking, depression is if they had prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. I think a lot of people are sidetracked by a primary focus on weight loss and shrinking their bodies. I think once people heal emotionally and spiritually, their bodies will take care of themselves, whatever that ends up looking like. And for most people, it doesn't really matter. Once they get emotional and spiritual healing, they're able to accept their bodies at whatever their God weight happens to be. So there's there's that piece just to sort of start with. For the data that's out, it's very, very preliminary. I think it's really important to keep in mind the big pharma landscape, which stands to make like trillions of dollars from these medications that started legitimately as, and that are good, type 2 diabetes medications, right? Um, So started as type 2 diabetes medication now it's also a weight loss medication for not even people who are obese but people who are overweight the vast majority of whom have no medical problems that they need to lose weight for and now we're already starting to talk about it for you know body repetitive body focused repetitive behavior disorders like skin picking addiction um compulsive you know food addiction So I'm very suspicious, you know, the data is very preliminary, but there is um, certainly brain effects of GLP on the reward pathways. Yeah, please speak to that. Yeah, so you know, when when people take these medications, many people say, I'm just not interested in whatever it is anymore.
1: And that's not just the nauseousness, because apparently nausea is a big feature. Like, I I just don't feel sick. I feel too sick to eat, but it's more than that, right?
2: Yeah. So for um, when people, especially when people are first getting started on them, nausea, diarrhea, For the shot versions of these medications, that usually is pretty intense the first two days afterwards. And that for sure affects appetite and people's capacity to eat. For some of the newer medications that don't have as much in the way of nausea, like Lagovi or Manjaro, it's not just about nausea. It's a lack of interest. But what I've also found You know, so I have a patient who has bipolar disorder, mostly almost always in the depressed state when he's not euthymic, complex PTSD from severe trauma as a kid, binge eating disorder, plenty of like anorexic thinking, you know, and weight obsession and body image obsession, food addiction for sure, and, you know, remote history of alcohol use disorder. He, he had bariatric surgery. Um, he was having end organ damage from uncontrolled diabetes, lipids out of control, blood pressure out of control. Um, had treatment before the surgery, had treatment after the surgery, got involved in, you know, 12 step work is deeply involved in the 12 step program. I see this guy outpatient in a men's recovery group and he, um, you know, in, in the States, when you're prescribing medications for people, you can see what else they've picked up. And I noticed that he was newly on Monjaro. And like, he has type 2 diabetes, did just find on a lower dose of Ozempic, was having three meals a day, you know, able to like eat and enjoy his food in ways that nourished his body. And he started having a lot of depression symptoms. I have no energy. Nothing feels good anymore. I have no motivation. And he's been in recovery from the food addiction and eating disorder for years now. And I said, well what's your food like? I'm not eating breakfast and I'm not eating lunch. When did you get on Manjaro? About two months ago. When did these symptoms start? A couple months ago. I'm like, you got to get off of that. You know, I don't think this is depression. I think this is malnourishment. And, you know, so I think it, it wasn't just like, I'm not interested in food. It was like, I'm not interested in anything. Right. So I think that's a risk, and I think part of how that happens is it really dampens the reward, you know, the nucleus accumbens. Um, circuitry is dampened.
1: Isn't that um, kind of like naltrexone then, but more because naltrexone also dampens some of the reward. And, right. I think runs the risk of natural joy. Yep.
2: Yeah. Exactly. I think it's similar to that, but just more, um, more profound.
1: Yes. You know. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting.
2: Yeah, but it, you know, if if I didn't know about you know his eating disorder, if I didn't know about these medications, I probably would have said, I think maybe we need to up your antidepressant, right? And no amount of, you know, antidepressant is going to help when you're only eating like 800 calories a day. It's hard to have any energy or motivation or drive for anything um, when you have a large body and you're eating a ridiculously small amount of food. So... You know, I think it's always, always important to. I like talking about the risks when everybody's talking about how, you know, it's a brand new day for weight loss in America. Weight loss has never been the solution and is still not going to be the solution.
1: Every doctor's group that I go on, that's all they're talking about, not only about their patients, but about themselves, you know?
2: Yes. No,
0: I was in Toronto last Thursday and the whole subway is Ozempic like advertising, but it's It's lined both sides. No other ads are down there. It was just like, I can't imagine how much of that must have cost, but it must be worth
2: it to them to put it everywhere. a ton of money in this, you know, and it's not going to, I don't think it's going to improve. One, I don't think it's going to improve, quote unquote, obesity rates. Um, I don't think it's going to improve health. And I think it's going to increase the amount of eating disorders that and food addiction that we're seeing. Because when you shut appetite off and starve the body, your metabolism slows down. And when you get off of that stuff, that's $1,500 a month you know, your, meta- now you have appetite again and makeup appetite and you have a much slower metabolism that doesn't go back up to your baseline before you started messing around with, with right. your metabolism.
1: And isn't it possible to become tolerant? We don't even know because we haven't had it around long enough, but what about tolerance? Like it's
2: uh, a big what? experiment and everybody's willing to do it because, uh, I, but we don't know, you know, we don't, we don't really know. I bet the drug companies hope people become tolerant because then we'll see, you know, instead of a 2.4 milligram dose, we'll see a 5 milligram dose, and then a 10, just like what happened with Oxycontin, you know, like, oh, it's a new day for pain, we have the cure.
0: Yeah, it's really, it is really scary times. And so I'm really grateful that you came on today and kind of shared some of the risks and your feelings about some of these alternative methods and also, you know, your experience with them. Where can our listeners find more about you and SunCloud and the work you do?
2: Sure. So our website is www.suncloudhealth dot com. That's a good place to get in touch with us and learn more about our programs. I would give you my husband and co-founder's cell phone number and he would probably be just fine with it, but I should probably ask him first. So I think start with the website. Um, You can message us there and we are responsive.
1: I found this conversation absolutely fascinating. I thank you so much. We want to close with a signature question, and this is a slight twist. But I'm really curious to see what you say. What would you tell your younger students about the about uh, in psychiatry now about eating disorders and food addiction as they're uh, coming into practice?
2: I would tell them, "Don't be dumb. Don't be dumb and think that it's one thing for everybody. Don't be dumb and think that food addiction can't possibly exist because there are people with anorexia." Or, you know, the eating disorder, you know, focus historically research wise and other in treatment wise has been on restrictive eating disorders, which are the minority of all the eating disorders and um, food addiction treatment is not about diet culture It's not about weight loss. It's about treating a brain disease that's called addiction. And addiction being a brain disease, no matter what anybody tells you, is not controversial. We have substantial data to support that. So that's what I would say. And I would say be brave because if you mention food addiction in eating disorder circles, you will be stigmatized, you will be othered, you know, but it's... Follow the science and follow your heart. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim.
1: Thanks, Kim. Kim. Wonderful. wonderful Thank you, guys.
2: Always awesome to see you.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life support group. I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.